Welcome to Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. I'm your host, Lindsay Claiborne. And together with our guests, we'll uncover and share stories from real HR professionals and dive into how they succeeded and sometimes failed in leading their people and organizations toward new ways of working. The role of HR has drastically changed. In today's world, HR is no longer just an administrative function. It is a key business driver. HR leaders are standing at the forefront of their organizations, navigating new challenges and leading major shifts in everything from recruitment, total rewards, engagement, retention, leadership, and more. In order to stay ahead of what works for their businesses, HR leaders are tapping into new ways of thinking and leading. I can't wait to share our dynamic and in-depth conversations with you. Remember, change is inevitable, transformation is influential. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Jim Reed, an accomplished author, speaker, and coach. Jim has a remarkable track record of building high-performing cultures and leading organizations through tremendous growth. With his expertise and insights, he has coached and developed thousands of aspiring leaders, helping them deliver extraordinary results. Jim's new book, Leading to Greatness, is a must-read for all leaders. Join us as we delve into his framework for leadership based on timeless principles that can transform your life. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today and so excited to chat with you about your career in HR and, of course, all of the transformations that you have seen throughout your time. And we want to dive in right away and get your take on your career and being in HR for many years, obviously a lot has changed even within the realm of HR, things have changed even just in the past couple of years. So interested to hear from you, what HR really looked like earlier in your career and how it's changed since then? What are the key things that you've, you've seen change? Yeah, sure. Lindsay, it's so great to be here with you today. So thank you very much for the invitation. My career has had three phases. I started off as an officer and a military pilot, so in, in the military. And, and uh, that experience you know, made me a better person. There's no question. I clarified my values. I learned discipline. And after 10 years, I moved out of the military into operations. I ran a business. And then mid-career, I moved into HR, into the HR function and became CHRO of three different companies and worked with six different CEOs while I was in, in the corporate life. I would say that early in, in my career, you know, HR at that time was looking for credibility. And there was a lot of conversations at various conferences about, you know, we just want a seat at the table. And I think the line management on the other side of that conversation was saying, hey, we just want HR to step up and be at the table with us. But of course, today, everything's changed. And uh, HR, the human resources leaders are at the table today. They're integral to business success. And the best HR leaders today are, are, are all about helping the companies perform better and drive performance, mm-hmm. win in the marketplace, and create a great employee experience where people can build careers and, and learn and grow and contribute and do meaningful work, et cetera. So, you know, there's no question that on the other side of the pandemic, this is our moment in human resources to drive more impact. So lots has changed and all, all for the better. I'm interested to, to understand, because that's actually the first time I've been hearing that there was equally a, a want for HR to be at the table as much as HR was advocating to be at the table. Why do you think that was? Why do you think there was a, a want and a need to, to have HR have a seat at the table? Well, I think leaders began to, as growth slowed, you know, over the years and the customer took on more, mm-hmm. more prominence, I think that leaders more and more began to recognize that, you know, competing in a, in a tougher, tougher market required a different approach. And so 
you know, it was interesting, maybe a couple decades ago that I first heard Dave Ulrich talk about, you know, the time for HR to transform, for HR to step up, to claim their seat at the table. But he always spoke about, when I heard him spoke the very first time, and I've known Dave for a number of years, he always talked about the fact that it's not business leaders are ready. They're waiting for you to take your seat. I think that's true. I think most business leaders understood the, the importance of team, the importance of recruiting the right people, the importance of culture began to take on more and more prominence as people began to understand its impact on performance. Now, all of that changed, I think, to try to, to, to create this opening for, for human resource leaders to really you know, be part of the change process and to really drive more effective change in companies. And you mentioned something there about the leaders starting to recognize the the need to transform, the, the need to create an, a great employee experience to have effective performance management. And you, you talk a lot about leadership. What do you makes a really effective leader, regardless of whether they're in HR or not? And I, uh, this is really what, what my whole career has been about. You know, for, for over 30 years, I've been studying and researching and trying to find the answer to this question, you know, what do the best leaders do differently and, and to outperform. And it's one of the reasons I, I wrote my book that was published last year called Leading to Greatness. It was really intended to try mm -hmm. to give leaders a much simpler, more timeless more easy to action solution about what it means to lead more effectively and drive more impact, not just in your work, but in your life. And most of the leaders that I was working with and coaching were asking me, playing a coach role in the organizations that I was in, obviously, to say, mm -hmm. you, we need something simple. There's so much going on. There's so much information. Help me figure out a model to lead that's simpler and more actionable. And that's kind of what caused me to, to write the book. And it's a framework that I use when I coach leaders every day. So, but, but at a high level, I would say that what did we find from the research and from over 30 years of, of, of observation? We found that the best leaders are values and purpose driven. They have clarity on their personal values and their purpose in life. And the more clarity they have, the more authentic they were as leaders. Second, they, I found that they also had clarity about their deep strengths and their, and, and their passion in life. And one of the reasons they're constant, they're continuously successful is that they never deviate from playing to their deep strengths and their passion. They're consistently able to make the right people decisions, you know, back to the good to great research, the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus. They, they were good at both. They could recruit great people, but they knew that when they needed to make a change and they made that change. They were engaged and they drove engagement in their team. That was principle four I talk about. And, and, and they understand that, that the team is the performance unit. And finally, they have discipline. And that discipline lives in this discipline drive for results. So I found that the best leaders understand and live these principles every day. And that's one of the reasons why they drive more impact. And those are such great principles, like you said, to have both in your professional life, but in your personal life as well. When it, I just want to go back to that clarity piece. When you talk about getting that clarity on your passions, your deep strength, your values, your personal values, do you believe that leaders have to, the, the best leaders, I guess, or ones that want to lead to greatness need to be intentional about making time for reflection? Oh, I definitely do, Lindsay. I mean, I, I think when I'm working with leaders or coaching leaders and I ask them the question, like when I start coaching, the first thing I do is I say, in order to help them and understand how to help them more effectively, what I like to start with is what are their values? What's their purpose in life? What are their deep strengths and what's their passion? That gives me a kind of an inside out view of who they are and, and what they bring into different situations. And when I'm coaching what I would say is top talent. They, it's very clear to me that they've done the work. They've reflected on themselves. They understand themselves. 
And so they can give me back their clarity of values and their clarity of purpose and, and clarity of strengths and passion, like in two minutes or less. And that's what great looks like. What good looks like is they're sort of clear. In order to be at your best every day and to drive great results, we're, t we're talking about a higher level of clarity, almost crystal clarity. And it's that kind of clarity that then allows you to hire for fit, to build great teams, to drive engagement and to, and to drive for results. So it's foundational for effective leadership, like to have that kind of clarity. So absolutely the best leaders that I work with, they've done the work, they know themselves, and they live that every single day to drive more impact. Which like you said, is, is so, cause they're setting the tone. It's so important for them right. to have that. And then for that to then trickle down to, to the people that they're leading. You differentiated there between good and great. And I know that you've collaborated with Jim Collins who authored good to great. Tell us about that collaboration. What brought that to light? And what did, what did you take away from that? Yeah. I mean, after I, be, I, they, I was moved in this, I was working for a global life sciences company and they moved me from running a business into HR at a time when the company was poised to grow significantly. I think at the time we were 500 million in sales and we grew it to just under 3 billion over 10 years. So it was, it was a lot of growth. And in order to, mm -hmm. one of the first things that happened when I became CHRO is they sent me to this program at Stanford University called the Executive Program in Organizational Change. And Jim Collins and Jerry Porras were on the faculty at Stanford and they were running the program. And it was right after they had released their blockbuster bestseller book called Built to Last. And so I just thought that that program was, you know, in some ways life-changing for me in terms of, it was the, the rigor of the research that really impressed me, that they didn't start with a hypothesis or an opinion on what outperforming looked like. They started with data and they drove into that mm -hmm. data and they, and they developed insights. They called them principles about what these mm -hmm. companies who have performed did differently. In the world of management thought today, there's a lot of good management thinkers out there. I've met many of them, but Jim Collins is in a league of his own. Like he is probably one of the best, probably because of the most rigor in his research. And he changed the way that I uh, thought about high performance forever. And I worked with him on three of his big projects. Good to Great was the first one. Then I did How the Mighty Fall with him. And the third one I did was called mm -hmm. Great by Choice. And uh, he's just a fantastic human being. Well, you mentioned something there about high performance. And I think that is a hot topic at all times. Like you said, HR leaders right now, there's a great link between the performance of the people and then the performance of the business. How would you define high performance? You know, in the work that I did with CEOs, if you're a CEO of a public company today, the, the metric that you live or die by is total shareholder return. So most like that is the CEO metric. And so most of the work that I've done with CEOs is around helping them assemble a team, a strategy, a set of priorities, a culture, an employee experience that can execute against that strategy and outperform the competition. So for me, high performance is all about results and it's performing better than the median in your industry and, and outperforming, you know, whatever companies are, are part of that competitive set that you get compared against. And I think one of the reasons why CEOs don't have a long lifespan is that there's no, we live in a world where there's no tolerance for underperformance. And so you know, you've just got to deliver, right? You have to perform and you have to deliver. And so for me, it's, it's just all about results. And how do you, or, or how have you coached leaders and CEOs to be able to balance both high performance as well as employee well-being? Because that is a, a hot topic right now, making people demanding more work-life balance, being high performers at their job, but being able to then separate in and have 
their personal life as well. I guess, first of all, do you think that there's a, a world where that balance can exist? And if so, how have you coached leaders to create that type of environment? Yeah, first of all, I just I'll share a quick story on when I first met Jim Collins. I, when I was on the program at Stanford and we were talking uh, after school one day or after class, it wasn't school, but after class one day. And he asked me, he said, why are you here, Jim? Why are you attending this program? I said, I was running a business. I was trying, the business model had been turned on its side. I was trying to figure out what to do to, in order to make sure that the business continued to be successful. And he said, uh, what to change in order to make sure the business was successful. And he stopped me and he said, Jim, you know what? That's the wrong question. In the built to last research, what they found that the executives did differently when faced with change was the first question they asked, what not to change. And what does that mean? What not to change is your core ideology. It's your core values and your core purpose. And when everything else in the world is changing around you, that becomes a constant, something that people can rely on. So the paradox of change is never change the core, your core values, your core purpose, but be open to change everything else, your strategy, your culture, your priorities. Why? Because the world is going to be a different place in five years than it is today. The companies who outperform are the organizations who adapt better than most. And that's the key, I think, to, to successful growth and outperformance. It's, it's on the one hand, don't change the core. And on the other hand, you have to be able to adapt better than most outperform. In your time working with leaders, have you found that they have challenges with defining that purposes, especially in the wake of needing to go undergo significant organizational change? And is it something they have to be very thoughtful about? Or do you think that it's something that they kind of put on the side and, and don't really give a lot of, a lot of, I think that the best companies who've outperformed have figured out that having that the core values and purpose is foundational to long-term success and they don't mess with it. Right. Mm -hmm. From there, mm -hmm. the best CEOs that I've worked with go right to people. And it's not that mm -hmm. people are your biggest constraint to growth. It's the right people. What does the right people mean? It's all about right. fit, right? It's people who are inspired by the purpose of the organization, share the values, they're team players. They have a passion for the customer. They're open to change and these right people become the essence of, of creating success in an organization. And so if there was only one thing that a CEO would have to learn how to do, it would be to make the right people decisions, get the right people on the bus, move the wrong people off the bus and put the right people in the right mm -hmm. seats and build strong, high-performing teams. I mean, that's really mm -hmm. the recipe for success. And that's how the best CEOs think. It's first who assemble the right people, and then the, having the confidence that these right people will figure out, in a sense, where to drive the bus once you get into the seats where they can be successful and they can really contribute. Yeah, absolutely. And do you believe that you first have to get the right leaders and then find the right people to put on the teams of those leaders? Or can it happen in tandem? I think it, it happens, you know, if you can only have one high performance team in a company, it would be the CEO's team. So you start at the top mm. because the leaders set the tone. You mentioned that earlier, Lindsay. I fully agree mm -hmm. with you on that. So if you only have one high-performance team, it would have to be the CEO's team. But the key is if you want to drive successful change and adapt and outperform over the long run, you have to build leaders and have the best leaders in the industry. Because these leaders mm -hmm. will understand how to attract great talent, how to deploy great talent, how to build great teams, and how to shape culture, shape a winning culture, right, that can win. There's a value chain for high performance. It starts with a strong culture and a great employee experience that leads to great customer experience 
And that leads to a strong financial outcomes. Culture is such an interesting concept to me. And it obviously means so many different things to different companies. But at its core, how would you define the concept of organizational culture? Yeah, like one of my favorite quotes is by Peter Drucker. It's culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think that's right. I mean, oh yeah, that says is, you know, <laughs> culture is everything. It's all about people. And culture is really the execution engine of the company, right? It's, it's how people work to get mm. work done at its simplest definition. It flows from yeah. the values and purpose of the company and, and hiring people who fit and who share a common values and purpose because it's all about behavior. But if you think of culture mm -hmm. as the execution engine, then the team is the performance unit. And the way you change culture at scale is you change culture one team at a time. So HR is too small to drive you know, large transformation or culture change. What, what HR needs to do in working with the, it starts with the CEO and the tone that gets set and the expectations that are set for leaders. Mm -hmm. But then it's the leaders that learn how to drive culture change. And, and the role of a leader is like the two primary roles are one, drive value to, to customers. And number two, mm -hmm. build a high performance team and, and shape a high performance culture that outperforms over the long run. And so kind of that's how you, you break it down in terms of how, how you think about it. And the organizations who are best able to adapt and shape their culture and adjust their culture over time, because the world is going to be a different place five years from now than it is today. They get this. That's how they deploy change. They, they do it one leader at a time, one team at a time. That's really great advice because it sounds like it, it makes it, at least in my mind, makes it change seem more attainable as well as not this daunting task that if you're in an organization of 500, 1,000, 10,000 people that you have to do this big sweeping change. It sounds like what you're saying is that is going to be less effective even though you may get a change all at once, that's going to be less effective than taking a more incremental and iterative approach to changing culture. Yeah. And I think it starts with holding the leader accountable. And if you can get your, mm. your leadership team aligned, it's very powerful. Mm. Like, you know, one example I would give you from Rogers is when I joined Rogers in 2011, you know, the, the core people metric at the time was employee engagement. And at that time, the engagement score mm. was below the Canadian, the North American median. So it was okay, but not great, you know, and maybe not okay, but not even good. And so I worked with, I was hired by Nadir Mohammed, who was a fantastic executive. One of the things he yeah. wanted me to do was transform the HR team to be more at the table and second to humanize the company. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we did a more comprehensive employee survey. I hired a PhD in analytics from Google. We determined what the main drivers of employee engagement were. And the number one driver was personal growth and development. And then we taught our director level leaders, we had a thousand of them, how to coach their individuals and their teams uh, to help them develop, you know, to their highest potential. And so we taught them how to coach people. Mm -hmm. And, and secondly, we taught them how to build a high performance team. And we took engagement from mm -hmm. the mid sixties to just to 89%. And we took our pride score from the mid seventies to 94% in six years. So you can teach leaders how to develop yeah. people and how to build high performance teams. And we never judged anybody about what their engagement score was. We said, it doesn't matter what your score is today. We just want you mm -hmm. to make it better, make it stronger. And right. we held them accountable to make the engagement score stronger. We taught mm -hmm. them how to build a high performance team and they did. And we saw engagement mm -hmm. go through the roof. 
And we saw huge improvements in customer experience and net promoter score, better performance in the business in terms of revenue mm-hmm. and earnings. And it just, you know, if you want to win, you got to be able to win in good times and bad times. And you can't win in bad times if your workforce isn't fully engaged. Um, I want to I want to ask you about the accountability piece. I think that's really interesting because I think at times it can feel that the HR, the North Star HR metric, whatever that is in your organization, in your example, it was employee engagement, can feel like that is the responsibility of HR. But whereas it sounds like what you're saying is, no, we're going, that is a responsibility of every single leader. So how, I'm curious how you developed that accountability because other organizations that are looking to build high-performing teams and want to also hold their leaders accountable to contributing to that, what's some advice you have for, for how you can build in that accountability? Yeah, I think this is one of the things that we learned from the good to great research, right? And, and the ability to go deep on well, what did they do differently? How did they think about people? And, and it was this principle, first who, then what? And when we talked to these CEOs, they would often, and they're faced, some of these companies face tremendous adversity. Like it wasn't all easy. And um, when they faced adversity, when we asked them the question, well, how did you, was it clear what you had to do? And they said, no, we didn't. We had no idea what we had to do in the business. The only thing we knew for sure was we had to get the right people, the right leaders into the right seats. And that if we were able to do that, leaders who were, again, inspired by the purpose, that shared the values, team players, et cetera, we had great confidence they would figure it out. The last organization, working at Rogers, is a big company, right? It's, it's scale. HR, the only way you drive successful change is through your leadership. And the, the leaders in the middle of the organization have 85% of the of people, the people in the company reporting up into them. And so they're kind of squeezed by the frontline supervisors below and the people below, and they're squeezed by the executives above. But it's that level where the performance leverage is. And they want to be successful and they want to do a good job and they want to learn. And if you can tap into that energy with them, you know, you can do amazing things and stay as a high performing organization over, over, over many, many years, right? Which is what the best companies do. Like the best companies have figured this out. Like that's how they operate. And there's so much that any company can learn. I always say if, if I'm the CEO and I can only do one thing in HR, what would I do? I, I'd build great leaders. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. It's where the, it's the difference maker. I would, I would agree with that. I think that leaders, they set the tone and it's not leaders just, just at the top. It, but like you said, it's especially those leaders in the middle that are really in the day-to-day and have a large percentage of the, the workforce reporting directly to them where they have such a large span of influence and, and span of control. I, I'm curious how all of your experiences working with executives, with leaders, uh, working with Jim Collins, taking that executive program, and how have you been transformed personally as, as a leader? I think for me, uh, of course, working with Jim Collins was a once in a lifetime experience, right? For good to great, how the mighty fall and great by choice. There's so much learning in there around what are the principles that drive high performance. I remember though, my military experience is really where I started to understand leaders and leadership. And I remember in the military, two high ranking officers, you know, consider them generals. doesn't matter what their rank is, but Mm -hmm. it's a power based system. They both have the same power. And what I noticed was that one of the leaders, you know, was able to build trust and followership with the people they led so much more than the other. And that's what kind of 
you know, drove this curiosity in me about, you know, what's really going on here, right? They must be leading different. A few years ago, Simon Sinek wrote a book um, that really resonated with me, the title especially, and the title was called Leaders Eat Last. And that, for me, kind of said it all about the essence of what it means to be an effective leader. Like you have to care about your people. You know, lots of organizations are want people to care about them, but that's never gonna happen if the leaders don't care about their, the teams that they lead, the people on the teams that they lead. And it's that mm-hmm. caring, it's the empathy, it's the humility, it's the commitment to the mission. It's, it's having grit. It's not being mm-hmm. afraid to do things. Don't, you know, not asking people to do things that you wouldn't do yourself. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's being an effective communicator and storyteller, like all these things create followership and trust and allow you to lead more effectively. So for me, at the essence of being a great leader, it's about caring for people. It's about being mission focused. It's about being a builder and not a divider in, in, in your relationships. And, you know, the other part of, for me, that was transformational was coaching. Like learning how to be an effective coach was a very, very powerful skill set. Like I mm. Consider it to be a life skill, not a business skill. What was your approach to becoming an effective coach? Did you, was it doing the research? Was it reading books? Did you take any courses to do that? Yeah, well, it, it started for me in the military, right? When I was a pilot, I was an instructor pilot. So I became a pilot and then I learned, then I went, when I was in Germany for five, almost five years, then I came back to Canada, I was an instructor pilot. What I learned was that the best pilots who taught me, instructor pilots who taught me, they were like natural coaches. They were, they created an environment where I could, be at my best and learn the best in my, in my environment. And so that was my first, I didn't know it was coaching. And like, I wasn't calling it coaching. It wasn't until, you know, the term right. became more in vogue that I realized it was coaching. But as a chief HR officer, you know, you're the HR business partner to the CEO and to the top executive team. And it's all, and, and what makes you effective is trust. And mm-hmm. you, because you're the trusted advisor and trust is the oxygen you breathe at that level, right? In order to drive impact. And so I started to learn that the, if I could become better and better at building trust on the relationships that matter in my mm-hmm. life and my work, I think I could be even more effective. And so I, I became certified as a coach. Then I brought coaching mm-hmm. to, you know, we, we took 120 of our HR business partners at Rogers and got them certified so that they had the courage and the backbone to lean into the tough conversations when they're needed, right? And to the support they needed, mm-hmm. but it's... You get tested in the tough times, not the easy times, right? I realized that this life skill called coaching allows you to build better relationships in all aspects of your life, you know, at work, with your family, with your friends, and with your colleagues. So it's, I think mm-hmm. I'm a big advocate for it. I really am trying to get out there and tell all leaders and all HR professionals, like if you haven't been certified, go get certified. It's going to make a difference, a big difference in your life. And how, it, it sounds like, again, you said the foundation of, of any good relationship, whether there's coaching or not, is, is trust. If a new HR practitioner was going into a, a CHRO position or an HR leadership position, what advice would you give them to start building that trust with their executive team, with the CEO? Yeah, that's such a great question, Lindsay. I think that trust at, at its core is grounded in intention. When you're building a relationship with a new CEO, for instance, or a new boss or whatever, you know, it's all about that they have to understand that your intention, it, that your intention with them is, is, I'll use the word honorable, but it's, you want the best for them. Like you're there to help them be the best that they can be and that you'll have their back in difficult situations 
that you'll speak the truth, right? You'll be there when they need you to be there. Like one of the things that, that I, I learned at Rogers with, with working with three great executives there, Nadir Mohammed and Guy Lawrence came in. Uh, he was from the UK, ran Vodafone, but an exceptional leader. He took over after mm-hmm. Nadir retired. And then when Guy left, Joe Natale came in and I had to build these relationships with three different executives. They were all very different, but you know, the, the basics and the premise of being there when they need you is there. Like I always said to my wife, Patty, in my role, when they call, I answer. So it didn't matter when they called, you know, seven days a week, whatever, I would make sure I would be there. I would always reach out to them, you know, for, and to say, is there anything that you need? What can I take off your plate? How can I help you? Is there anything that's concerning you? Do you want to have a conversation today? Like I'd make sure that I had five or six or 10, you know, coaching moments with them in a day. So we have to, as a CHRO, you have to, to be the one that steps towards the CEO and make sure that the intention is clear that you're there when when they need you and that you don't have to try to tell them what to do you know coaching is all about the power of questions like what you have to do is to make sure that they're not missing things you ask them questions you help identify options and your goal is to make sure that they're them they're committed 100 committed to the best solution that they believe they can take and, and so my role is to help them get, get clarity and to have commitment on a path that's a that's a really great a really great way to sum up the role of an HR leader is to help get coach them along the way to to that clarity in whatever situation it is that they they may be in. Okay, so we have come to the end of our conversation, but that means that it's time for our lightning round, which is a series of three questions. And you can answer them with either one word or one sentence, or if you choose and you want to give a little anecdote to either explain your answer or just to add more, more color to your response, that's totally fine as well. But are you ready, Jim? Here we go. Okay. Number one, what is the number one thing that you think HR leaders need to transform their thinking? Well, I think it's, we talked about it today. It's, it's that you're there to help drive better business results. Everything you have to do has to drive better impact into the business and make the business stronger, more effective, more competitive. And if I could add a second one, you need to also go get certified as a coach. You may have inspired me to do that today, Jim. (laughs) Number two, what is the most impactful piece of feedback that you've ever received? I think the most powerful piece of feedback for me has always been play to your strengths, play to your deep strengths and passion always, and never deviate from it. And I think in, in, on the assembly line of life, we're given certain things that we can excel at. We can't excel at everything. So in my book, I talk about it's a discovery process. You have to look to your successes and figure out when you're most successful, what strengths and what passion did you draw on? This is your best path for success. Mm-hmm. Play to your strengths and passion every single day of your life. I'm going to ask you a follow-up to that. Can your strengths change or evolve over time, or even you can add to those sure. strengths I think, over time? I think the way to think about it, Lindsay, is, is that your, your strengths, like for instance, for me, think about me, I'll use an example. Like I'm, I, one of my strengths, you know, going back 20, 30 years was I could build good relationships with people, build strong relationships. But that strength, I transformed that strength into building high trust relationships with people quickly. Strengths mm. can be deepened and broadened and but, and you want to think about, you know, three to five core strengths, right? And, and then, you know, your passion in life should start with your family, your friends, and then the type of work that energizes you. You know, what's the expression? You never have to work a day in, in your life if you love what you do. Mm-hmm. Definitely your strengths will broaden and deepen over time, but it's the path for your best success in life, right? Doesn't mean you can't 
work on other things. It just means that you probably won't excel at that to the same extent that somebody else is genetically encoded in that area and you're not, right? You have to figure out what your genetically encoded strengths are and play it. Awesome. Okay. Last question of our lightning round. So how much of your journey is made up of failures and how much of your journey is made up of successes? I mean, I had a lot of failures. I used to say, you know, that I would drop more balls in a day than I talked to my team when they, when something happened on the team and somebody made a mistake and they felt bad. I said, Hey, don't worry about it. I've already made more mistakes today than you've made in the last month. So I think you have to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. My Mm -hmm. kind of orientation around this was every day in life, I'm going to do my very best. And sometimes things are going to go right. Sometimes they're not. But, but the most important thing is that I put my heart and soul into it, that I give it my all. And, and when it goes right and wrong, you learn equally from both. And so I think mm-hmm. uh, people shouldn't be afraid of, of failure. You know, it, there, I've learned some of my biggest lessons in life I've learned from, from failure. You just have to dust yourself off, get back up, learn from it, be the more wiser and go for it again, right? Never, you know, hit the gas pedal. That's what I would say. Absolutely. Well, that is a great note, I think, to end on. Jim, it was so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so Lindsay, much for your time. anytime. I'm here. You get life, free lifetime coaching for you, okay? <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, take care of yourself. This has been Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. To find out more about Cardata's vehicle reimbursement software tailored for HR professionals, visit cardata.co and see how you could benefit from a fully managed reimbursement program.